welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize the top stories of the past week. First of all, the good news. The good news is that the vaccination rate is approaching 2 million vaccinations per day. And a third, a third vaccine has been approved from Johnson & Johnson. And this vaccine requires only one shot, not two, and does not require all the elaborate super refrigeration process that the other two vaccinations require. So some people think we're turning the corner on this epidemic. That's the good news. The bad news is that some epidemiologists are saying that states are beginning to reopen too soon. In other words, we could be tempting a fourth wave of an epidemic of the coronavirus. We had the first wave back in March, the second wave during the 4th of July summer vacation, and then during the Christmas winter season, we've had three waves of the coronavirus, and the third wave seems to be peaking and falling now, but is flattening out, is plateauing. So some people think that it's too soon to begin the process of reopening the economy. Plus the fact that there are 17 new mutant varieties of the coronavirus in the United States alone. Now, I live in Upper West Side, Manhattan, and it turns out that a new variety of the coronavirus originated right in our backyard. That's right, right here in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the new strains emerged. And the question is, how good are our vaccines against these new strains that are now emerging? And then a new controversy is erupting over where did the virus come from? A team of scientists went to China from the World Health Organization, and they concluded that, more than likely, the virus was a natural byproduct of mutations in the wild. However, now top scientists are saying, wait a minute, perhaps it's too early to make such a blanket statement, given the fact that many of the scientists in that WHO story are too closely affiliated with China, and where's the beef? Where's the proof that this virus actually came from a natural mutation? So in other words, they're saying that an independent, an independent group of scientists should go to China to settle this question once and for all. And then there's a yet a new controversy erupting over this third vaccination process. Johnson & Johnson is now fielding this new vaccination process, which does not require a second shot, which does not require elaborate um, refrigeration. But some people are claiming that maybe it's second rate. Some people are saying that maybe it's not as effective as the first two. And why are they giving it to poor people and to minorities when perhaps minorities and the poor are being shortchanged by an inferior vaccination process. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute as well. And then we'll say a few things from the science front. 
Lucid dreaming is in the news. There's a new report, perhaps the most elaborate report done so far, about the ability to dream and control your dream. These are called lucid dreamers. This is not science fiction. Using MRI scans, we can now prove that, yes, indeed, some people can actually control consciously the direction of their dreams. So we'll say a few things about that study. And then magnetic pole flip. Some people are worried that the magnetic field of the Earth is weakening, which is true, and one day will it flip. And 42,000 years ago, there was a flip, and now scientists in New Zealand, for the first time, are beginning to state that perhaps that pole flip, 42,000 years ago, had an effect on life on the Earth. What happens if there's another pole flip? And also, I'd like to make an announcement, and that is I have a new book coming out on April 6th. That's right, a new book hitting the book stands on April 6th. You can pre-order it. The book's title is The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. You know, for the past 2,000 years, perhaps the greatest quest in the history of science has been to find an equation perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to unify all the laws of the universe. Think of the equation E equals mc squared. It is half an inch long, but it unlocked the secret of the stars. It made possible, in fact, the hydrogen bomb and the atomic bomb, but it explained why the universe is lit up at night it explains the energy source of the stars themselves. Well, Einstein wasn't satisfied with that equation. He wanted a more powerful equation, perhaps an inch long, that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God. In other words, this is the greatest search in the history of science to find a single equation that could unify all the laws of the universe. It's a 2,000-year quest begun by the ancient Greek philosophers who first asked the question, what is the world made of? Today we have hundreds, hundreds of physicists at the various laboratories around the world trying to tease apart experimentally and theoretically the nature of this fabled equation, an equation that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life, an equation so powerful that it would be the crowning achievement the crowning achievement of 2,000 years of our investigation in the universe. Now, some people say, well, so what? I mean, it's a great equation, very powerful, but of what use is it? Once formulated, it could answer some of the deepest questions of philosophy and physics. What happened before the Big Bang? Why did it bang? Why is there something rather than nothing? And black holes, what's on the other side of a black hole? When things fall into a black hole, what happens to it? And what about wormholes? Are black holes gateways to other universes? And what about time travel? Can wormholes take us back into time itself? And what about the death of the universe? How will the universe die? Well, sad to say, all these questions cannot be answered using Einstein's theory and the quantum theory. We need a higher theory. And that's where, quote, the God equation comes in. The God equation is specifically designed to combine gravity with 
the quantum theory to answer these cosmic questions about time travel, wormholes, faster than light travel. In other words, the destiny of our civilization may eventually hinge upon this theory. Well, anyway, if you want to know more about my latest book, The God Equation, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. You can pre-order the book. The book hits the newsstands uh, around April 6th. So watch for it when it comes out to your neighborhood. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The success rate is approaching 2 million vaccinations per day. That's a tremendous success. Three vaccines are now available, the latest one from Johnson & Johnson's, and the infection rate keeps dropping. Keep your fingers crossed. That's the good news. But there's some bad news, too. The bad news is that some states are beginning to reopen, fully reopen, and some people are saying it's too soon. Yes, we are on the downside of the third wave of infection. The, the curve is falling, but the curve is also flattening out because once people start to rip off their masks and interact with people closer than six feet, it means perhaps the infection rate will once again give us a fourth wave in other words, history may repeat itself. Some people are saying that instead of a complete reversal of a lockdown, why not have a targeted opening that is specific to the event to make sure that we reduce contact between infected people, a targeted opening rather than a just general opening. And why should we care? Because there are new strains, mutant strains of the virus. In fact, 17 17 new strains of the virus have been seen just in the United States. And one of them came from Upper West Side Manhattan, where I happen to live. And so we have new strains of the virus, which could be quite dangerous because our current vaccination program may not totally halt them. So in other words, epidemiologists are saying that it's simply too early too early to let our guard down. And of course, the goal is to have herd immunity. Herd immunity is when we hit, for example, approximately 70% of the population becomes immune to the virus, but we're a long ways from hitting herd immunity. In other words, it's a race against time. On one hand, the more people are infected by the virus, the more mutations occur within these individuals. And that's why we have to speed up the vaccination process to prevent the mutation rate from increasing. And then the next question emerges, where did this virus come from anyway? There's been a lot of back and forth, back and forth on this question. But there's a team from the World Health Organization which concluded after visiting China that it was most likely a natural mutation found in the environment. But other top scientists have signed a petition saying not so fast, not so fast. They point out the fact that the WHO is very close to the Chinese scientists, personally and professionally. They point out that it's simply too soon because the data could be tainted. And of course, they're now saying that we need an independent body 
an independent body independent of the WHO and the Chinese government to make an assessment as to where the virus really came from. Did it come from an accident? Did it spill out from some experiment done at the Hunan laboratory? And why is it that the virus originated perhaps very close to one of the top uh, biotech top secret installations in China. Is that an accident that the virus could suddenly emerge not too far from one of the top secret laboratories in China? Some people are saying that the only way to resolve this question is to have another body independent of the WHO, independent of the Chinese government, once and for all, going through the data to find out what really caused this virus. And then there's yet another controversy. How safe is this third vaccine from Johnson & Johnson? Well, on the plus side, we should mention that it has tremendous advantages. Not two shots, but one shot is sufficient. And also, you don't need to have elaborate super refrigeration. You can use standard refrigeration processes for three months without having to worry about degrading the vaccine. But a new controversy is emerging. So now we have this rumor going around that the rich white suburbs, they're going to get the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, while the poor, the minorities, the disadvantaged, they're going to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, when you look at the numbers, however, you begin to realize that the difference is kind of like an illusion. First of all, yes, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are 95% effective in terms of preventing an infection, while the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is only 72% effective. And when you take a look at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it is 66% effective in preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 symptoms. However, when you look at the Johnson & Johnson numbers more carefully, you find that it's 100% effective in preventing hospitalizations and death. So in other words, in some sense, it's like comparing apples to oranges. But the main thing, I think, is clear, and that is people should get vaccinated, whether it's the Moderna, Pfizer, or the Johnson & Johnson. And just remember that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has gone through phase three trials. In this case, 45,000 people were tested. 45,000 people were tested. Now, why is it that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine came in late after the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine? That's because the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was made the old-fashioned way without that much genetic engineering. The old-fashioned way, like the polio vaccine, you get either dead or weakened polio viruses and grow them in eggs. That takes time because you're dealing with the whole uh, virus. However, with modern uh, genetic engineering, it's possible to zero in on just the spike proteins, which are the entryway into the cell. And you can do this using messenger RNA technology, which in some sense has never been tested on this scale while the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses the tried and true method. So again, it's like apples and oranges. 
The main conclusion is that if you have a chance to get vaccinated by one of these three, then by all means, get vaccinated. Also, we have news on a totally different front, and that is the whole question of lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is when you actually are awake while you sleep, meaning that you know you are dreaming, you're conscious of that fact. In fact, you can even alter the dream. That's right. You can actually consciously alter your dream as you are in the dream. Now, throughout scientific history, most people thought it was nonsense. How can you possibly modify a dream? But it turns out it's true. Using MRI scans to peer into the living brain, scientists in Germany at the Max Planck Institute have shown that lucid dreamers can, in fact, consciously control their dreams. And here's how they did it. With an MRI machine, they were able to show that when a person, a normal person, goes to sleep, blood flow in the prefrontal cortex starts to drop, meaning that you're no longer conscious and the fact checker part of the brain is also shut off, and so you believe in all sorts of nonsense. However, the amygdala of the brain, which generates emotions, main, mainly fear, it turns out that the amygdala is very definitely energized when you go to sleep. So the combination of shutting off your fact checker and turning on the amygdala creates dreams. Now, it turns out that with lucid dreamers, both parts of the brain are still active as they are dreaming. In other words, they're fully conscious. Their prefrontal cortex still has blood flow consistent with you being awake. And it's possible to communicate with these individuals as well. Just last week, there was a new study published which goes in detail about how they communicated with people controlling their dreams. First of all, when you dream, you are paralyzed. That's right, you're paralyzed, because if you are not paralyzed, you will act out your dream and cause all sorts of havoc. So these individuals in an MRI scan have to be very carefully controlled and communicated with, and here's how they do it. When you go to sleep, you're paralyzed. So how can you talk to a paralyzed person? Well, before the person went to sleep, you gave them instructions. For example, your eyes the eye motions, and your squeezing of your hand muscles and contracting of your facial muscles, these all can be done even when you are paralyzed. So when these individuals went to sleep, the scientists were able to show that these people could do math problems. That's right. They could do math problems while they are asleep. They could follow instructions. So the scientists would give them instructions and these people would carry them out. For example, yes and no questions. They could signal yes and no and thereby communicate with the scientists. They could also tell the difference between different kinds of stimuli, like touch and smell, for example. Different kinds of stimuli, they could tell the difference between them. And again, they could communicate with the scientists by squeezing your hand contracting facial muscles, and using eye motions. Now, it turns out that you, too, can learn how to become a lucid dreamer and begin the process of controlling your dreams. There are many ancient Buddhist texts showing you how to do it. Uh, let me just summarize really quick. For example, before you go to bed at night, 
You have to consciously remind yourself that you're going to dream and you're going to be awake. And you are the master of your dream. So you have to prime yourself to get ready. And then when you actually do go to sleep and wake up, you have about two minutes or so before the dream vanishes into oblivion and dissolves. So right after you wake up, you have to train yourself to have a notebook, a diary that writes down all the facets of your dream. And it takes a while. You can't do it the first try, but eventually you get pretty good at it. And I also should mention another byproduct of this, and that is some people, about 5% of the human race, when they wake up in the morning, they are still dreaming. And these individuals think that there is an animal that's sitting on their chest, staring down on them. And when they try to move, they're paralyzed because this animal is sitting on their chest, staring down on them. And then when you actually wake up, you forget about it and do your daily chores. Well, under hypnosis, it's possible to evoke that feeling, that feeling of being helpless, paralyzed when you wake up, the sensation of an animal sitting on your chest. And some scientists have speculated that this is the origin of the alien abduction syndrome. It turns out that there are hundreds of thousands of individuals, very normal people. We're not talking about uh, hoaxers. We're not talking about people trying to fool others. No, we're talking about normal people that believe they've been abducted by flying saucers. Now, there's several ways to deal with that. A, maybe it's true. We have to investigate. But B, there's another possibility and that is maybe they are, uh, as we mentioned, people who suffer from sleep paralysis, about 5% of the human race. And when they wake up and they feel paralyzed, they think they're being strapped down and experiments, hidden secret experiments are being done on their body. And that animal that's staring down on them is actually an alien, an alien doing experiments on your body. So, well, we can't prove it, but there's a certain theory that says that roughly 5% of the human race may be susceptible to the alien abduction syndrome because when they wake up in the morning, they are paralyzed. Now, you may ask another question, and that is, why do we dream at all? And what's the meaning of dreams? Well, of course, books have been written about this for centuries. The short answer is, we don't know. However, by looking at brain scans, you can see that certain parts of the brain are active. And one part of the brain is not just the sensation of creating the dreams, but sorting them out. The brain has to sort out the meaning of these dreams. And so some scientists believe that the purpose of dreams is to sort out unpleasant memories. Like we said before, the amygdala, that's where many unpleasant memories, in fact, even nightmares are generated. And you associate a memory with an emotion. Now think about it for a moment. Go back to your childhood. Remember the things that you did as an infant? And you begin to realize that some of the things you did were nonsensical, random, not important at all. No one's going to write your biography writing down all those things that you remember. But why do you remember those things? Scientists have noticed that there's an emotion an emotion associated with these fragmentary memories. These emotions could be totally nonsensical and random, in fact, but 
they associate. So in other words, one theory is that the dreams that you have are precursors of memories which are associated with emotions and the merger of a memory with emotion creates a permanent record which allows you to sort through and basically come to terms with these unpleasant or frightening or disturbing memories that you may have. Well, that's just a theory. Well, let me say another thing about the fact that the magnetic field of the Earth is dropping and we could get a pole shift. Now, this is not the pole shift you see in Hollywood movies where the geologic North Pole wanders and the crust of the Earth cracks and the oceans sink and all hell breaks loose and it's the end of the world. No, there are two kinds of North Poles. One is the magnetic North Pole, which is in Canada, and the other North Pole is the geologic North Pole. We're talking about the wandering of the magnetic North Pole, not the geologic North Pole. In fact, the magnetic North Pole wanders rather frequently, and pole flips actually take place on the scale of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. And currently, the magnetic field of the Earth is weakening. Well, here's a study done in New Zealand. It turns out that 42,000 years ago, we had a pole shift in the magnetic field of the Earth. 42,000 years ago. And we've been able to document that now by going to New Zealand and looking at ancient fossilized tree trunks, cutting them open, and calculating the carbon-14 content. Now, carbon-14 decays at a very straightforward mathematical rate. Therefore, by looking at the residual carbon-14, we can calculate how old that tree trunk is. It's like a fingerprint with time, allowing you to use a stopwatch to calculate how much residual carbon-14 there is left. So when there's very little carbon-14, we know that it's very old. When there's a lot of carbon-14, like ordinary living tree trunk, then we know that it's quite young. Well, sure enough, they found the tree trunks representing the coal pole flip of 42,000 years ago. You can actually see it. You can see that the chemistry changed, uh, weather conditions changed 42,000 years ago when the pole flip. Now, what does that mean? The magnetic field of the Earth is a shield a shield that protects us from the harsh rays, x-rays coming from the sun. We need that shield. However, when the pole flips, that shield goes to zero, and all of a sudden x-rays, x-rays from the sun come barreling down, uh, depleting the ozone layer, and all of a sudden life forms on the planet Earth are adversely affected. So this was a theory, but it seems to bear fruit. For example, take a look at the giant kangaroos of New Zealand. Uh, they went extinct. So one theory is that the pole shift can actually cause periodic extinctions of life on the planet Earth. Now, then the next question is, what does that mean for us? It means, first of all, that the magnetic field of the Earth is declining. In fact, it's wandering. The North Pole's in Canada now. It's actually headed toward Siberia, of all places. So we know that a pole shift is going to take place because the magnetic field of the Earth is decreasing and the pole itself is shifting. 
Now, we can actually calculate this because we have records from the ancient mariners of the strength of the magnetic field going back centuries. And if you go to Hawaii and simply dig into the magma flow of Hawaii, when the magma solidifies, it solidifies with the direction of the North Pole frozen in place. So by simply digging into the magma, looking at the, the arrow pointing in the direction of magnetic north, you can actually see that over thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, the poles do decrease and increase in intensity and they wander. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was George Johnson writing about the pioneering work of a woman in science, Henrietta Leavitt, the one who taught us how to measure the heavens. And this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. Find out about my latest book, due out April 6th. It's called The God Equation. The Quest for the Theory of Everything. It's about the greatest search in the history of science, a 2,000-year quest to find one equation which summarizes all the laws of the universe. So go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers, and I have four and a half million fans on Facebook. Good day. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about the legacy of an unsung hero of astronomy, Henrietta Leavitt. In fact, it's scandalous that this woman has been pretty much ignored in the annals of astronomy, even though she helped to measure the universe itself. You know, back in the 1920s, astronomers asked the question, how big is the universe anyway? Well, they thought that the Milky Way galaxy was the universe. Scientists back then thought that the Milky Way galaxy would be perhaps 100,000 light years across. But that's about it. That's the size of the universe. But you see, Edwin Hubble wanted to measure the distance to the other galaxies or spots of light in the night sky. What were these nebulas that tantalized astronomers? Well, here's the problem. If you have a light source that is very dim but very close to you, it has an image which is identical to a light source which is very far away from you and very bright. So in other words, how do you tell the distance to the stars? Well, you need a standard candle a standard candle that is the same everywhere in the universe by which you can calibrate how far a star is. 
And that's what Henrietta Leavitt did. Henrietta Leavitt, by looking at what are called Cepheid variables, was able to come up with a formula that allowed scientists to have a standard candle to measure the distance to the stars. And Edwin Hubble then took that and was able to measure the distance to the Andromeda galaxy, which was found to be millions of light years away. And that gave us, eventually, the expanding universe theory, and with Einstein, gave us the Big Bang Theory. So we'll talk about the unsung legacy of a woman in science, Henrietta Leavitt, who measured the distance to the stars. But before we begin, let me just say that I have a new book coming out on April 6th. You can actually pre-order it. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. You know, when I was eight years old, something happened which changed my life. I saw a picture in the newspaper, a picture of a man's desk with the unfinished manuscript opened up, and the caption said, this is the unfinished manuscript of the greatest scientist of our time. Well, I was hooked. I was fascinated. I had to know, well, who is this man and why couldn't he finish this book? What's so hard that the greatest scientists of our time could not finish that book. Well, years later, I found out that that man was called Albert Einstein. And that book, the unfinished book, was his fabled unified field theory. It was to be an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. One equation that would unify all the laws of the universe into a single comprehensive theory, just like E equals MC squared, which is half an inch long, helped to unlock the secret of the energy of the stars. This equation would summarize the entire universe in a simple equation. Well, unfortunately, Einstein failed. In fact, for the past 2,000 years, going back to the Greek philosophers, scientists have asked the question, what does it all mean? Is there a simple paradigm to explain the entire universe? The universe seems so scattered, so random. Is there a cosmic equation, a paradigm? That's the God equation. And today, people think that we have it. We actually have the string, one of the main branches of string theory. So anyway, this book, The God Equation, chronicles 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of matter and energy. Going back to the Greeks, and then to the work of Isaac Newton, and then to the work of electricity and magnetism unraveled by Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell, going up to the quantum theory, the atomic bomb, and the work of Albert Einstein. So find out about this 2,000-year quest, the greatest quest in the history of science to find the God equation. Well, now I'd like to get on with our interview Today we have with us George Johnson of the New York Times writing about this unsung hero of astronomy, Henrietta Leavitt, the person who helped to measure the scale of the universe. So today we can measure the scale of the universe, getting the result of Henrietta Leavitt, who in her own lifetime and many lifetimes after never got any credit for her great discovery. We also have the sad story of Jocelyn Bell, a woman graduate student who discovered the pulsar, but it was her thesis advisor who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of the pulsar. 
And we also have the sad story of Vera Rubin. Back in the 1960s, she was one of the first people to point to the fact that the universe seems to be full of something called dark matter, but her result was ignored, and only recently has the theory of dark matter been given experimental verification because of all the males who have now jumped into the field. So our special guest today is George Johnson. He's a writer for the New York Times Science Section, also author of many books, including Fire in the Mind, Strange Beauty, and his latest book is called Miss Levitt's Stars, the untold story of the woman who discovered how to measure the universe. And it's one of the scandals of science that Henrietta Levitt never got the credit for measuring the universe. And then in the second half of exploration, I'm going to bring on Michael Lemonick. It's a pre-recorded interview. He is a science writer for Time magazine, and he's going to talk about the latest results from the WMAP satellite, which give us a fine-tuning of the distances to the stars and, in fact, the age of the universe itself. So once again, our first special guest today is George Johnson, author of the new book, Miss Levitt's Stars the untold story of the woman who discovered how to measure the universe. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? I think it must have been a combination of the, uh, the all-about books, these great children's books about different scientific subjects. And, um, and then there was the whole space program, which was just getting off to a start. And I would see these wonderful pictures in Life magazine and the Saturday Evening Post and Sometime around the second grade, I wrote my first book, which was called The Solar System. Oh, really? It was made of, you know, it's from Big Chief tablet paper and my father's shirt cardboards and crayons. with <laughs> one page for each, uh-huh. each planet. But, uh, not, not a very penetrating uh, treatment, I don't think. Nothing like Davis Sobel's new book. Now, you also mentioned that uh, you read science fiction as a child. Yes, later on I did um, junior high school. I really... You know, got interested in reading Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein. And, and uh, that was very inspiring. I mean, there's a Swan Heinlein story that I, I mentioned in my introduction about the telepathic twins that can... Yeah, I read, that, I read that book, too, as a kid. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, well, that, that, that just really... The, the thing that really moved me in that was the idea of them... Um, uh, landing on this planet on a distant star system and looking back and seeing the Earth as a tiny little star that's part of a, a suddenly unfamiliar sky. It's, uh, it's all distorted by this uh, different point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I read that science fiction story as a kid, I said that, gee, two twins communicating telepathically faster <laughs> than the speed of light? No, give me a break. You, you were way ahead of me. I, I, <laughs> I bought that hook, line and think. Although I did know it was fiction. Now, why did you decide to write a book about Henrietta Leavitt, who, for the most part, is this tiny, tiny little footnote in most astronomy books, but most astronomy books wouldn't be written without her work? Yeah. Um, partly out of a, a sense of frustration, because I keep seeing these little footnotes or these kind of two-sentence two glancing mentions of her work, and, and I started to get this picture in my mind of this... Um, this woman around the turn of the century, kind of little post-Victorian time, sitting up in some dark room in the Harvard Observatory in, in Cambridge and poring over these star charts. And that image kind of fixed itself in my mind, and I thought, 
I would start a book about measuring the universe with Henrietta Leavitt, just kind of to get into the book. But then I just really became very curious about who this person was and what, if anything, we knew about her. And uh, was lucky enough to find some documents with a good researcher in the Harvard archives that helped flesh out her story a little. Okay, well, let's now set the stage for exactly why her discoveries are so important. Um, in ancient times, of course, uh, ancient peoples would look up at the night sky, look at the stars, and wonder, how far are they? You can't throw rocks to hit the stars. You can't jump. Uh, even the highest mountaintop, you can't reach the stars. So how did astronomers first begin to estimate the distance to the stars? Yes, and... Um they were able to estimate distances to things on Earth using triangulation. And, you know, we do the same thing with modern surveying, where you you um, look at something from two different vantage points and see that it shifts slightly against the against the more distant backdrop, and you can use trigonometry to figure out how far it is. And Hipparchus, um, in ancient Greek times, did that with the moon and got a pretty good estimate of the distance. But... Um, the stars are so far away, even the closest star, that you could uh, measure from two different parts of the Earth, and you wouldn't see, see any shift of the position, so you can't triangulate. So it was a big problem. Were the stars tiny and close by or enormous and very distant? Now, this process is called parallax, and it's also the reason why we have two eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. So explain to us why we have two eyes rather than one eye, and if you injure one eye, it's quite difficult to judge distances. Yes. Um, you really, if you think about your eyes as forming um, the ends of a base of a triangle, um, you're essentially triangulating unconsciously on things as you um, look outside. Like right now, I'm looking out my office window at this old church across the street, and as I walk around through the window, the church you know, seems to move against the backdrop, and I, my brain is presumably doing some unconscious computations and giving me a sense of how far away that is. So if we were born with one eye, we would always be running into things because we didn't know how far away they were. And that's also how 3D glasses work, right? Your yeah. left eye sees red, your right eye, the other eye sees blue, right. and your, your brain puts the red and the blue together to create a three-dimensional image. Yes, right, or those old stereopticons where you have the have the two postcard images that are slightly different, one one for each eye, and it gives you a 3D effect. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the radius of the Earth's orbit around the sun is about 93 million miles or so. Right. And so if you take a picture of the night sky in summertime and a picture of the night sky in wintertime, you've actually moved the telescope over almost 200 million miles, right? <laughs> yeah. So you can imagine the uh, it's like having an eye on each side of the uh, the solar system, and and from seeing how some of the stars, the very closest ones, shift a little between um, you know every six months, um, that was that gave um, astronomers a way to triangulate the distance to the very very nearest stars, those just a few light years away. But most of the stars, by far, are so distant that you don't see any parallactic shift at all from uh, season to season. Now, children often say, gee, uh, Daddy, how come the moon is following me? Everywhere <laughs> I move, the moon is following me. But that's because the moon is so far away it has no parallax, and it gives you the optical illusion that it's always above your shoulder, right? 
Ah, yeah, you know, I'd never actually thought about why that was, but sure, of course. Now, also, the a light beam uh, from the Earth to the Sun takes about eight minutes, mm-hmm. so the the diameter of the Earth's orbit is about 16 minutes by light. But you just mentioned that the nearby stars are tens of light years away that are familiar to us every night. And so the parallax must be very small to yeah. the faraway stars, right? Yes, it was just a fraction of a, of a second of a minute of a degree. So it was a very, very delicate measurement and something that uh, wasn't really possible until I think it was the 19th century when they really had uh, equipment good enough to make measurements that finely. Mm-hmm. Now, usually when we judge distances, we use what is called a standard candle. <laughs> if I have a candle that is the same everywhere in a room, and I move the candle anywhere in the room, I can judge distances because uh, the fainter the candle, the farther it is away. Right. It's the same candle. But stars are not standard candles, right? Yeah, we, don't, we had no way of knowing how bright they were inherently. So, you know, again, it's the question of is it very bright and really close to us? I mean, very bright and um, really distant, or is it very dim and really close to us, or somewhere in between? But yeah, without actually going out there in a spaceship and measuring it up close, the you know it was a big mystery of how we'd know how bright they were, so we could calculate their distance. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's go to the 1920s, uh, where uh, when scientists had astronomers had a pretty firm idea that the Milky Way galaxy, which we see every night, uh, this swath of light cutting across the night sky, uh, that the Milky Way galaxy was, in some sense, uh, the entire universe. Uh, yes. Could you explain to us how we viewed the universe in the 1920s? Yes, that was one of the things that I really found most astonishing and that drew me into wanting to write a book about measuring the universe was to realize that as recently as 1920, it was a matter of scholarly scientific debate whether the Milky Way was the whole universe or not. And, um, and if that were true, then something like Andromeda, which we now know to be a neighboring galaxy, would be instead just a very small little, little smudge, a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of stellar dust or something very, very close into Earth. And that's certainly what Harlow Shapley, one of the great astronomers of the 20th century, thought. And, in fact, wasn't there a great debate that you mentioned in your book uh, concerning uh, the structure of the universe and how far the stars really are? Yes, in Washington, D.C., at the National Academy of Sciences, and Chapley took the position that, um, that the Milky Way is the whole universe and that there aren't any other galaxies. And uh, Heber Curtis, another astronomer, took the uh, opposing view that actually the Milky Way was just one of many, many of what uh, Immanuel Kant had called island universes, or that there are many galaxies, and Andromeda was being one of them, and the Magellanic Clouds being a smaller satellite galaxy. So it was a very, very heated debate, and each man really left Washington convinced that he'd won. So how big was the universe to Harold Shapley? Uh, in the early 1920s, he must have had an estimate as to how big the Milky Way galaxy was, and that was the universe. So how big was the universe to him? Well, let's see. Um, you know, I can't really immediately recall the number from Chapley's calculations, but he used, um, um, used the standard candles that Henrietta Leavitt discovered to kind of measure out the um, Milky Way. And... Um, 
but it was just, you know, obviously vastly smaller than the universe that we know about today. Okay, well, now let's get into uh, Henrietta Leavitt's work itself. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, where she was born, uh, where she grew up, and how did she wind up as an astronomer at Radcliffe? <laughs> yeah, it was a, a very interesting trajectory. She was uh, the daughter of a Congregationalist minister, a uh, very, very Puritan kind of upbringing in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And at some point, her family moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where her father had a church, and later out to the Midwest, to um, first Ohio and then to Wisconsin, Beloit, Wisconsin, and she followed the family there. And um, went to, the, the family valued education, and they encouraged her to go to school, and she was in Beloit College in Wisconsin at first, and then later transferred to Radcliffe University back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, partly because she had relatives there. And um, during school, she had what was really just a general liberal arts education. She had some science classes, and, uh, but mostly humanities. Toward the end of her, um, her time there, before she graduated, she took some um, astronomy classes that were taught by astronomers who just walked across the street from the Harvard University Observatory. And that's when she got hooked. And she took a volunteer position at the observatory right after school, I mean right out of school, and this led into um, her job as what they called a computer, someone who was hired to do calculations. Now, even today, uh, grad students have to support themselves, uh, either by part-time jobs or scholarships or what have you. Uh, you mentioned in your book that she came from probably an upper-middle-class background, so she yeah. probably didn't have to worry about a job, right? I think she probably—I I was never able to, to confirm that, but it seems clear that she must um, have been of somewhat independent means, because there are these letters in which she talks about going off on cruises to Europe and things, and— uh, this was she was being paid twenty five cents an hour, which, if you put it into an inflation calculator, comes out to be about five dollars in today's terms. So, mm-hmm. you know, basically what you'd make working at McDonald's. Okay, so um, I understand that back then, of course, they didn't have calculators, and uh, astronomers relied upon teams of women to yeah. do their calculation for them. Is that right? Yeah, they tended to be women and. Um, it was considered a, a good job to get at the time. It paid better than working in the cotton mills, and of course, for someone like like Henrietta Leavitt, it was um, it was a you know somewhat intellectual occupation. She seemed to to enjoy it, and and a computer at the Harvard Observatories um, wasn't only adding up columns of numbers and doing calculations, but also studying these uh, photographic plates of the sky that had been taken at the Harvard Observatory down in Peru. So uh, it was pretty interesting work, I guess, for someone who um, was interested in astronomy, but then also very, very tedious, very, very painstaking work. And there was a certain uh, sense that it was women's work, you know, and the men would uh, make the discoveries and talk about what the stars meant and interpret the data, but the women were there to, to gather it. And precisely what did she do to change the course of astronomy? The um, director of the observatory, Edward Pickering, I mean, he quickly realized that she was, uh, you know, very, very good at this and uh, even uh, very overqualified. <laughs> at one point, he gave her a raise to 30 cents an hour. And um, 
he assigned her a project of looking for variable stars in this um, haze of light called the Magellanic Clouds. Uh, this had been photographed by the Harvard Observatory in Peru because you can only see it, see the clouds in the um, southern hemisphere. They look um, somewhat like like the Milky Way, except except round. Um, so Levitt was looking at these plates and asked to look for stars that varied in brightness from um, week to week or month to month, and sometimes even from day to day. And uh, she'd do this by comparing a plate taken, say, in January with one taken in February of the same part of the sky, and um, then would look for stars that had varied in brightness. So she was doing this, and she discovered just a very large number of variable stars within the Magellanic Clouds. So uh, she was curious about how, you know, what their periods of um, pulsation were, so she made a list, and at some point she noticed that there was a correlation, so that the, um, the dimmer a star was in the Magellanic Clouds, the dimmer a variable star was in the Magellanic Clouds, um, the more rapidly it blinked, and vice versa. And she drew a little graph and showed that there was a definite relationship between the star's rhythm of pulsation and its dimness or brightness. And how could that be used to then uh, establish a standard candle that could be used throughout the universe? Well, essentially, since all these stars were in the Magellanic Cloud, she knew they were roughly the same distance from Earth. So um, it essentially meant that uh, you could measure the rhythm of the pulsation, and from that you could derive the inherent brightness. It would sort of be like um, if an international commission had decreed that a that 50 watt light bulbs blink at a certain rhythm, and that 100 watt light bulbs blink at a different rhythm, and that there was an exact relationship um, between the uh, dimness and brightness. And then, if you looked out your window out onto the town, you could tell by how uh, fast the bulb was blinking, how bright it was. And once you knew how bright it really was, you could uh, calculate how far away it was using the inverse scale, the inverse square law. Okay, so what astronomers did was they looked at a variable star, calculated how fast it was blinking. That would then tell you how dim or bright it was. And since these are standard candles, that would tell you the distance to the star. Exactly. Then. And, and they, um, they, they very quickly found that there were um, variable stars within the Milky Way, and um, they were able to use this to get you know, kind of a sense of, um, you know, they had to calibrate the scale, in other words, because they, they could say that, um, well, here's a variable star blinking, you know, at this rate, so it must be um, uh, so many, you know, times further away than that the second star that's blinking at another rate, but it was all relative distances at that point. So she was aware, therefore, of the importance of her discovery, right? I mean, Yes, it was clear, and that's one thing that was, it's kind of been controversial, at least from some things you'd read. You'd almost think that she had just gathered the data and that Edward Pickering or someone had figured out the relationship. But if you really look closely at her paper, um, it, it's just obvious that uh, she knew exactly what she'd found and, and why it was important. So she published her results, so you could then infer from the publication exactly what she knew and what she didn't know, right? Yes, right. And, you know, there's always a question of, you know, 
her being being uh, an assistant and a computer and working for Pickering, there's a question of how much input he had into the papers, but it was you know, right there with her name on it, and that's what counts. Uh-huh. So in some reports I've seen, uh, they sort of treat her as just a computer yeah. uh, that just punches out the numbers, but she didn't know what the numbers meant. But you're saying that she actually did know oh, yeah. Yeah, that she had she discovered did. a standard candle. Yeah, and there's one part. I mean, her papers are, are very, she was a very reserved, quiet woman, and her papers reflect that. And, and toward the end of one of them, she um, she basically mentions that this would you know be a means of, uh, of uh, distance measurement. And... And, and and she says it in such a way that uh, you know it just comes out very clearly, like like aha, you can see the light bulb going off in her head. So wasn't this heralded as a big discovery? Well, um, kind of. You'd think <laughs> um, within astronomy, people quickly realized it was was important, and uh, an astronomer named uh, Ejnar Hertzsprung used uh, used Henrietta Leavitt stars to to, to uh, measure some distances within the Milky Way and, and first started calibrating the yardstick. And then Harlow Shapley, um, who, who went on to become the head of Har- Harvard Observatory, used um, Levitt standard candles to really map out the Milky Way and, uh, and just show how great it was. Um, but the, the real big breakthrough came when another astronomer, Edwin Hubble, found um, some of these... Uh, Cepheid variables are called Levitt stars in the Andromeda Nebula, and once he knew that he had uh, had these standard candles there, he could measure how far Andromeda was and show that it was not, as Shapley believed, this little smudge close by, but that it was indeed a huge galaxy. I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was George Johnson writing about the pioneering work of a woman in science, Henrietta Levin, the one who taught us how to measure the heavens. And this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. Find out about my latest book, due out April 6th. It's called The God Equation. The Quest for the Theory of Everything. It's about the greatest search in the history of science, a 2,000-year quest to find one equation which summarizes all the laws of the universe. So go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers, and I have four and a half million fans on Facebook. Good day. <laughs>